0: Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter.
1: Use what you have. Don't feel like you have to go out and buy all of these things that I used in my painting. Start off and see how you like it. You can do some basic things with a glue stick and some paper, some craft paint and a pencil.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we work to answer the question How do you get better at painting? I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers, and this week in a mini but not so mini episode, I'm talking with the voice you just heard, Sandra Duran Wilson. And we're discussing some of the foundational aspects of mixed media, including paint, paper, and mark making. In the conversation, you'll discover different thicknesses of acrylic paint, how to prep your collage materials so they are ready to use, and will stand the test of time. And we'll get curious about all those other aisles in the art store, like seriously, the pastel aisle, what's even down there? So one thing we don't get into are gels and mediums, and that's because Sandra talked about all of those in her episode 20. So there will be a link to episode 20 in the show notes at learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 41. Friends of the podcast at Patreon Gloss and Up, go check out your bonus episode, Ready Now, where you'll discover how to get paint evenly applied when you're using stencils. And Sandra discusses one of her favorite tools, Crackle Paste. Plus, you'll get a little peek into what an artist and I chat about after we've finished our official interview close. And you may notice that this is a full-length episode. The ultimate goal is to get the show up to two feature-length interviews a month. And if you're interested in helping make that a reality, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash support and click the Patreon link. We're almost a quarter of the way there, plus new and current patrons will get the reference starter pack for the 20 for 20 Art Challenge 2022. Learn more at learntopaintpodcast.com slash support. All right, here we go. Hi, Sandra. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we are going to talk about basically mixed media 101. Mixed media is a vast subject, so we're going to get into some of the nuts and bolts of it as a medium. So first off, what is mixed media? Well,
1: hi, Kelly, and thanks for welcoming me back. I'm so excited to be here again. And mixed media, as you said, is just this completely open bag. But basically, it's like when you're using more than one medium, it comes down to it. So you could be using watercolor and pencil or charcoal and ink or something, and that could technically be mixed media.
0: I have this idea that mixed media is only for non-representational work, but it can be for representational, non-representational. Like, it can be any subject. Absolutely. In fact, I see a lot of artists that, especially
1: lately in figurative work where they're actually using a lot of collage I'm thinking of one artist you know a couple artists in particular that they might collage a lot of labels from products and kind of create this entire background and then they paint a figure you know a face on the front of it and that's quite popular right now So that's just one example. And the other one with, say, landscape painting or even still life is that you're creating this incredible texture underneath using mixed media. So perhaps you're putting fabrics down or you're putting veneers or you're, you know, you're just creating a textural background and then you paint your realistic scene and it adds to that landscape some of the actual texture the piece. So I think it's conducive to any type of genre of art you want to create.
0: So we're going to talk about a lot of the different sort of components of mixed media and what they are and what you might consider around them. And first off on the list, acrylic paints. For someone who is new to mixed media and new to acrylic, we talk about acrylics all the time on the show. But one thing that We haven't talked a ton about on the show is what are the different types of acrylic paint from a viscosity standpoint? And what is viscosity? Well,
1: viscosity is a fancy word for how thick something is. I like to use fluid acrylics. Now, fluid acrylics are going to usually come in a bottle that you can pour them out. And the reason I like to use the fluid is because I tend to paint a lot of thin layers and when I paint on a thin more transparent layer of paint I let that dry I can come back over with another transparent layer of color and I call it optical mixing and it's a way of letting your eye do the mixing rather than taking the two wet paints and mixing them together. I'm mixing them in layers, but you have to use the more transparent colors. And if you think about it, they're going to be the ones that sound like they came from a lab, like phthalos and quinacridones, not necessarily the ones that sound like they came from the earth, which are yellow ochres or red iron oxide. Those colors will tend to be more opaque. Now, When you're first starting out, if you don't have acrylic paints, you know, you can go to the craft store and pick up a few little bottles. They're just a couple of dollars each and just kind of play around with them. But if you think you're gonna wanna do more, I would encourage you to buy a small set of like fluid. Golden has a nice little set of fluid colors. Also, they make one called High Flow, which, it's more like an ink, like an acrylic ink. So when you look at viscosity of paint, at the most fluid, you're going to have inks. Then you're going to go to high flow fluid, and then you go to heavy body. And heavy body is what comes in a tube. And I, I have all three, of course, I use. But if I'm using, let's say I've mixed up a color of uh, fluid acrylic, and now I want that same color, but I need it to be a heavy body. I'll just take some of my gel, like a regular gel, and I'll mix the paint into that. And that's not only going to give it a different viscosity, it's gonna make it thicker, but it's also gonna extend the paint too. And, you know, we talked a lot about that in the other podcasts about how to change transparency. So I won't go into that, but those viscosities, think about it when you're working on something, if you're starting the first layer, and maybe that's where you're gonna use your fluid or your high flow, because it's very fluid. It's gonna to wanna to sink like into the valleys. But you're getting toward the end of your painting and you want to accentuate the textures that are on top. So you need something thicker that's gonna stay up on the peaks. And that's where you would use a heavy body or a thicker viscosity paint.
0: So do you generally work then from a viscosity standpoint, thin to thick? I do. Generally,
1: generally starting with that, but it can also depend on your surface too. Let's say if I've got a really textured background that I've made with corrugated cardboard or something, so I might mix some paint into a gel, and then I'll drag that over the surface. So then I can use that viscosity to push that gel down in and get have it be thicker because the gel is going to hold a thicker layer than if I'm just using a very fluid paint it really it's not only you you also want to think about the thickness and uh, the mark making that you want to create with it
0: if you're doing the optical mixing you want to make sure that each layer is completely dry before you do that next layer right correct correct okay and the other thing and we do talk about gels and mediums a ton in episode 20 with sandra but i do want to just like insert a quick note here too because for me when i started out mixed media was how i got into art in part because I met Sandra and loved her work. But one of the things that you can do, like if you just have, and I don't mean just, like those craft paints, those $2 craft paints are a marvelous way to get started. They're like, they're so opaque and they have this lovely matte finish and they're just like, I love the 99 cent ones. But you can just add a gloss medium to something that's opaque and suddenly you can do transparent layers. You can take something that you have that maybe is a less expensive material that is something like opaque and then add transparency to it so you Mm -hmm. can work both ways with that one sort of maybe a starter material or I don't even want to say a starter material but like what you have. Yeah
1: use what you have. Yeah absolutely I mean you can take that yellow ochre or red iron oxide and make it more transparent by adding the gel to it and I would say a gloss gel, because that's going to make it more transparent. And as I said, it extends your paint as well. So, and I like to use gels with a knife because I can kind of control the application of it better than with a brush. When you're using a gel, it kind of gets all mucked up in your brush, but with a knife, you can get a nice smoother transition to it. And the thing is, if you're using a craft paint, the difference between a craft paint and an artist grade paint is the amount of pigment that they're putting into the paint. So in a craft paint, you have less pigment. And it's kind of funny now, the way trends go that the acrylic was all glossy, everybody loved that. And now they're making matte acrylics because everybody's like,
0: oh no, we want it matte
1: now. (laughs) Kind of like fashion, I think. They change it every few years.
0: Which, as a mixed media artist, means sometimes the thing you love goes away. Exactly. Next up on our list is the big one. So, collage. So, mixed media can have a lot of pieces, but when someone talks about collage, what does that sort of mean?
1: Well, I mean, technically the word collage is from the French means to glue, you know, to glue on. And I think that kind of covers the basics. So anything you can glue on adhere, you know, it can become collage. And personally, I love collage because I'm always exploring and experimenting with papers and I love paper. I love to make my own papers. I love to take found papers and you know, I'm walking down the street and I see this interesting little piece of trash and it's like, "Oh, that'll be good," you know, or I take a picture of texture on one of my hikes and it's like, "Oh, I can print that out." But so collage is is kind of overwhelming. For some people I was talking earlier about uh, my husband Mark had been taking some workshops with me internationally when I was teaching and he finally said you know he goes I really don't like collage because it's so endless I never know what piece to use and do I put another one on or you know why am I doing this and it just didn't speak to him so collage is not everybody's cup of tea and that's okay. I mean, you can still do mixed media without collage. In fact, you could use just found papers to create like a textural background before you even begin your painting. So it doesn't even have to be something you're going to see in the finished product.
0: I have this idea of someone tearing off a piece of paper and gluing it midway down, but you could just start your backgrounds with a bunch of collage and then forget about it after that point.
1: Absolutely. I think I did one on on one of my YouTube videos of taking brown paper bags and just tearing them into pieces and gluing them onto a surface. And it actually begins to look like an old stone wall. So you're creating an interesting background. You're getting past the fear of the blank page type of thing. And from that, I did everything from like little pen doodles and drawings on it to completely painting over it to gessoing over the entire surface and then just having those kind of crinkly textures underneath there's probably as many ways to do collage as there are things you can collage but i kind of break it down into a few different areas like the one i talked about you could create a textural background that's one way you could begin. So if you're new to collage, that might be the easiest way to get started is just grab the brown paper bag or just some papers you have and just glue them down. And you could even crinkle some up. A good glue to use is either a white glue or you know if you're just started and you don't have a lot of acrylic gels and paste, my go-to glue is Golden Soft Gel Gloss, you could also use a mat, but Mod Podge or you know, something like that could work just as well. The other way I like to think of is, why am I even doing collage? What's the intention behind it? So my work has a lot of intention and meaning kind of buried into the work. So it's not in your face, you're not seeing it, but sometimes the collage pieces might be roadmap to find your way into that meaning. So I might use pages from a book, like old math books and stuff. It's like physics, whatever. I even have one that's on shorthand. It's got some interesting marks on it. So that's another way of thinking of why am I using this paper and putting that on and then creating what I call like truth windows. Let's just picture this. You've got a black and white Graphic page from a book. You get that glued onto your surface. Then you come back in with uh, this transparent color so now you've added that layer then you might want to come up cover a lot of it up so you come in with a, a lighter color and to do some veiling so then you drop some alcohol onto it or water and you open up these truth windows I call them so you can start to see back to the history of where you're going and you just keep building these layers so that's the second way and then the third way would be to actually use collage as your focus of your piece. So perhaps you've got a background you've already made and you could use a collage of a photograph of something or drawing and so that could become the final part, the focus of it.
0: So those are three ways to get started I think. When someone is looking at something and sort of considering. Whether it would be a good collage material, how to use it, what are some of the things they might run into? So, for example, like not all papers are the same or not all things will last the same amount of time. What are some of those considerations when you're looking at a new piece of potential collage material?
1: So the main thing you want to look at is the pH of a piece of paper. And you don't have to know chemistry to know that, but just know that like newsprint, a newspaper, if it's been laying around for a couple of days, it starts to get brittle and yellow and it doesn't last long. So it doesn't have a good pH. And I like to take papers that are like that and I make photocopies of them. So if you don't have your own laser printer, which most people don't, you know, just go over to your corner photo copy store or whatever, right? Here's a really good tip. So let's say you're gonna make a copy of a newspaper article or something, and it's just black and white. Well, don't go to just the black and white copy machine, go to the color machine and pay the extra money to get a color copy made of black and white. And it might seem kind of silly, but the grade of the toner they're going to use is much better and the quality of your print is going to be much better. So it might cost you maybe twice as much to do that. But, you know, we're talking it's your art. So so once you have that copy, you can then make other copies from it. So. I like to keep a copy of something and from that I can enlarge things, I can shrink them, I can change scale, I can change colors, I can do a lot with that. But let's say you just have a piece of paper and you're not interested in replicating it or saving it. There are some sprays that will help with digital photographs. You can usually buy Krylon, I think, is one. I used to get a spray that was a pH neutralizer, but I have not been able to find it recently. You know, products come and go a lot, so... You know, I might say something, and then two years down the road, somebody's listening to this, and they're like, what's she talking about? I can't find it. But look for something that's going to preserve a digital photograph and spray the pieces. Now, sometimes you might go into a paper store, and you find these beautifully colored mulberry or lotka papers, and they're just gorgeous, but they're not light fast, So they're going to fade out. A couple of things you can do. You could either spray the whole thing, I like to spray big pieces of paper before I cut them up into tiny little pieces. It's much easier to spray an eight by 10 piece of paper than it is 20 little dots. (laughs) But so just take a piece of it and spray it with, uh, you can use a UV spray varnish. And I know Golden makes, um, It's called MSA varnish, and the MSA stands for Mineral Spirit, which is that's usually going to give you the better UV protection. and spray it outside. Do not do it inside. It's a nasty spray. Spray it outside and leave it outside to outgas for a while because it'll stink up your room. So once you do that and you have these papers ready to go, then it's easier to use them. The other thing I like to do with those brightly colored papers is to actually paint them. So if, say, I've got a turquoise colored paper, I'm just going to kind of mix up a similar color paint and then just kind of paint it over it loosely so that some of that background is showing
0: through. So over time, if it fades, I get even a more mottled effect. When you were talking about the laser print as opposed to just your at-home inkjet, why wouldn't I just use my at-home printer?
1: Your at-home printer, which is probably an inkjet, it's going to smear when you get it wet. So if you go to apply a gel medium or a glue, that ink that's used in an inkjet is water-soluble. So a laser print is done with a heat set, and so it's not going to smear. So let's say you have something that you don't know if it was an inkjet or if it was a laser print. So just, you know, lick your finger, dip it in some water and kind of go onto a corner and see if it smears or not. And if it smears, then it's probably an inkjet. And if it doesn't, uh, then you're probably good to go.
0: I feel like to be a mixed media artist, you have to be a master in knowing the difference between will it smear or will it not smear?
1: Sometimes smearing, you can attain a, an interesting effect with that. But you know, just that simple, I call it, you just lick it test. And that's the easiest way to know. I love to buy papers, different places I travel to. And a lot of times I'll just buy papers that have patterns and those kind of papers, you can make copies of them, but I usually would spray them with the varnish as a big sheet and then cut them up. But I can't go in and paint all the colors on those little patterns. So I usually use them sparingly in collage. But here's the other thing. If you use those, when you get finished with your whole piece, then you can seal it with varnish Again, to protect
0: it. One of the cool things about mixed media is that it's a bunch of materials, but one of the sometimes frustrating things about mixed media is that, especially now with the internet, like you'll hear an artist you love have a video or a workshop that they taught 10 years ago and you'll take it and they'll mention all these things and half mm-hmm. of them may not exist anymore, but probably what they do exists somewhere. And I think that's the thing probably like this product may not exist, but what does that product do and who else Mm. is making it now?
1: Oh, what an excellent point. I I love the way you you stated that, Kelly, because there are things that... You know, this is gonna be your homework. You have to go on a journey and find these things that might change. And what you said earlier too about mixed media, the fun part about it is there's so many materials. Well, that can also be the downside of mixed media is there's so many materials but use what you have. Don't feel like you have to go out and buy all of these things that I used in my painting. Start off and see how you like it. You can do some basic things with a glue stick and some paper, some craft paint and a pencil. You know, you don't need a bunch of expensive stuff to get started.
0: So we talked about papers that you find or buy. Do you make your own artist papers?
1: I create lots of papers in my painting process. I use a lot of deli sheets. If you go into a bakery and they're using this paper to grab a croissant or something, and it's like a wax paper, but it's not quite wax. You can find them easily in this country. In other countries, sometimes they're going to be called something else. So I use those a lot to actually move my paint. I put plaster on them. I do all kinds of things with them. And other papers I make, gampy silk tissue is another one that I really like. It's a paper that you can draw on, you can paint on, and it will hold it. It's very strong, but if you have open areas and you adhere it, the paper itself kind of becomes transparent when you use like a gloss medium on it. My other favorite piece I like to use, I use these dryer sheets that they're like a fabric and I just get the kind that don't have any scent in them and I I use them. Then I throw them in the next load of wash and wash it again so there's absolutely no chemical left in it. And those are great to spread any leftover paints or gels or paste onto, just Take that piece of fab. I mean, and you could use a piece of fabric. You could use whatever, but instead of throwing away that product, you use spread it on a paper, spread it on a piece of fabric, and that will become part of your mixed media.
0: I want to make a note real quick about the deli paper. I think it's sometimes called dry wax paper. Yeah, and it comes in a bunch of different sizes. It comes in different colors, but that smears. Heads up, the checkered pattern is very cool, but it will smear on you.
1: Right. Um,
0: So, I mean, you can buy them online, but you can also, if you have a restaurant supply store, that is like a mixed media mecca, just wandering those aisles. So use deli and dryer sheets for extra paint. So then do you use any of the artist tissue papers? Well, the GAMPI is
1: what I would consider an artist tissue paper. It can be a little overwhelming to try and find it because the term GAMPI, G-A-M-P-I, is kind of a generic term for silk tissue. So if you look for silk tissue, then you might have a better luck finding it. I don't really find a source on like Amazon, but if you go to certain paper stores online you can usually find it. And you know when you're looking for it you should be able to find a size that's probably about 18 by 22 for about three or four dollars. So if you're looking at something more than that then it's probably something different.
0: Is that then acid-free? Is that something that someone should look for? The silk tissue is acid-free.
1: A lot of the other art tissues, which are like, um, there's mulberry papers, there's unri papers, you know, a lot of Japanese papers. Usually if you go onto their site, they will tell you. And... The thinner the papers, probably the more likely, well, I, I say that, I don't know if that's specifically true, that they would be more pH neutral, but it's like, um, I'm always searching for, oh, a new paper, a new texture. And I found this great paper I bought and it was like copper glitter paper. I love it, you know? So it's like,
0: Ooh, I'm gonna have to go back up to Taos and get some more. So for collage materials, Do you use them all at the same places in your collage? Are there some that you only use as background or only use under other layers of acrylic paint or other things?
1: It's a tough question because, I mean, I'm a big believer in rules are made to be broken. But when I'm building my pieces, I'm working with... I'm gluing a lot of layers on, I'm going to use a gloss medium because if I use a matte medium and I put on five or six or seven layers, it's going to diffuse the original layers so much that I'm not going to see them. So I'll use gloss medium to build up my layers. And then on my final layer, I can alter that sheen by using a matte medium but I'll still keep the clarity of it. So that doesn't quite answer your question, but it kind of goes with the transparency. So I'll tend to lay the more opaque things down first, the more transparent things will go toward the end so that you can see through them.
0: So there's a bunch of archival stuff out there, but there's also a bunch of really neat things that aren't archival. Do you just stay away from those completely?
1: No. I used to because my work gets sold in galleries, you know, for a good amount of money and you want things to last. But at the same time, I don't want that to stifle my creativity. And Rauschenberg was one of my first influences for mixed media. And I mean, the curators and museums are going crazy trying to keep his chicken parts and doors and chairs from falling off film and stuff. But it was that idea of the creativity. So I love to take packing materials, you know, like cardboard or even the boxes that the toothpaste comes in, or corrugated cardboard and all of these pieces. And I'll use my tricks to make them as archival as possible. I'll spray them, I'll gesso them, I put them together. They're gonna get mounted under glass. And maybe they're not gonna last 500 years, but with everybody making art today, do you really need everybody's art to last 500 years? Probably not. If it lasts 50 years, you're probably doing good. But I just, I want people to really embrace the idea of mixed media that it can, don't get overwhelmed by it, pick a couple of things and start to explore it. And then maybe after you've been doing that, then you start to think three-dimensional or you, you know, just kind of, I call it following the breadcrumbs. Sometimes you get an idea and you get that, well, what if I did this? And you follow those breadcrumbs and they're going to lead you down to a path
0: of, you know, what you want to do. So we're going to move into mark making. What's important to consider before you pick up a mark making tool?
1: You want to think about what kind of mark you want to make and why and Think of mark making as your voice. Do you want to whisper something so somebody has to move in closer to hear you or do you want to shout something really loud and and really grab somebody's attention? So type of mark you're going to make, whether it's delicate or whether it's big, it's going to depend on the tool. So if you're trying to make a big, broad mark and you're using a tiny little pit pen, you know, it's going to take you forever. So that's what you want to, you want to think about is what is your mark about and I do a lot of exercises with students in finding your mark making and you just start to to play with it you know keep a little journal and try different tools and different fine tipped pens are great for doing hash marks and if you look at some of van gogh's early drawings he was really a master of mark making of how he could express different parts of the landscape with just a little mark of direction that it went on or the lyrical move of it and from that you might start to get a feeling of like oh i like this lyrical move or i like this strong bold hash mark sometimes i i need something really big like a big mop and i go out and and just take some inks and water and big pieces of paper and just use your whole body to make marks so what is it you're trying to say i think is the first thing you might want to consider before you decide what tool you use
0: one well, for you, do you use mark making generally in the beginning or do you use it in the middle or the end or where where do you use mark making? A lot of times I will
1: start my pieces before I do anything and I will write on them. It might just be a word. It might be a poem I've written. It might be, you know, just an inspirational word. And so I might begin with that kind of mark making. None of it's going to be seen but i know it's in there it's like the seed that i'm planting for the painting so i mean you could consider that mark making i tend to use mark making in the initial phase after that say if i'm using you know some thicker medium on the piece and i'll use my knife to like mark into the to the piece rather than actually using another tool and I either use my palette knife, which I usually paint with a palette knife more so than a brush even. And I'll use that for creating uh, a which is moving wet paint back to reveal underlying layers. But in the final parts, my mark making might be more delicate to just draw the eye. So I might take a pen and just do some dots or some smaller areas. So I guess I
0: would go from the larger mark making to the smaller mark making as I build up. Do you think it's important to have mark making at all of those levels for harmony?
1: That's a good point. I never really thought of it that way, but I like that idea. You know, I'm always talking about changing the scale. So let's say if I've I've got a lot of circles in and I use a lot of circles in my work that I might have larger circles in the background and then but I like to overlap shapes. So I find that when you tend to overlap things, it integrates a piece. And it's you know, if you think of it as like two hands coming over rather than two hands kind of separate. When you link shapes, it creates a larger shape. And you can do that with mark making as well.
0: We're throwing around mark making as this term. But if you're new to painting, mark making might be one of those like arty art f- phrases. That <laughs> like, artists what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, like we're literally just talking about marks. Like you take a pen and you scribble on, that counts as a mark. Or dots count as marks or like gestural. Mm-hmm. But it's just like an, a big umbrella term for Kind of like collage kind of like collage (laughs) exactly yes so then as a mixed media artist for mark making there are whole rows of the art store that you may have never been because you thought i'm not a pastel artist i don't belong down that aisle but as a mixed media artist like you get to wander into any row any (laughs) aisle you want so I, and I want to talk about pastels just for a minute because they are such a lovely mark making tool. Could you talk just briefly about the different kinds of pastels that someone might find in an art store?
1: Well, you've got basically two kinds. You've got a chalk pastel and an oil pastel. And I find chalk pastel, for me, I don't tend to use it as much as I do oil pastel. I like the oil pastel because I can put it on. I can draw or scribble or just add a layer of color. And then if I come back over with a a diluted acrylic paint with some water, it's going to kind of want to resist that area. So I can create an interesting surface texture by adding the oil pastel. Whereas with a chalk pastel, it tends to have to be your very last step because of the nature of chalk and it will also smear i mean chalk pastel is beautiful because and the reason it's so beautiful is because it sits up on the surface of whatever you're working on it's different than paint paint will sink in and fuse with the previous layer whereas chalk it just sits up on the surface and that's why it looks so luscious and vibrant and then if you have to seal it, you spray it, and it kind of dulls it and changes it. So I, I don't like that disappointment. <laughs> so I tend not to use it just because it's like, oh, no. But, you know, everybody's different. And depending on what you're going to do with it, I mean, I absolutely
0: use that, just maybe some small dots or something with it. And maybe I'm not saying this right. The Caran d'Ache, Caran d'Ache,
1: Caran d'Ache is uh, water-soluble, and it can be fun to work with on paper. I find that I can add it to acrylic painting, but if it's kind of the glossy surface, it doesn't stick as well. If you're working on paper, and I think if you're starting out in mixed media, just get some mixed media paper. Canton makes a nice tablet you can buy, and just start playing with that because you don't want to invest in a lot of canvases and boards until you kind of get a feel for it. And the Caran will work well on that because you can draw with it. It's like a pencil. And then if you take a wet brush, it becomes watercolor. And then we'll probably, you're probably going to ask me about pens.
0: I am. But first, yeah, I wanted to (laughs) ask a question. So It sounds like what I hear you saying with mark-making tools, one of the things to consider is a little bit like the lick test from before, like some will spread with water and some will not. Correct, yes. Okay, so that's something to sort of test, because sometimes they look the same, like I used to just throw all of my mark making tools in the same pile and then realized I had no idea which ones <laughs> would move on me or not. So I cleaned that up.
1: There's a there's a thing I do it's called scribble to structure. And I like just grab a handful of pencils and markers in each hand and I just scribble on the paper and I come back in with pastels and, and markers and all kinds of stuff and you've got this kind of crazy mess, and then I use rollers and stamps, and and then, you know, here's the creative challenge, is you've got you to make sense of it. So I take that paper, and I cut it up into smaller pieces, and then work with each of those individually to kind of bring that in. So your little box of mixture stuff would work well for that exercise.
0: <laughs> so then, yeah, pens. Pens are something that I feel like I've come a long way in the past, even just short bits. So yeah, just talk to me about pens.
1: I have kind of a love-hate relationship with pens. I'll get one, I really love it, and then I'm using it and then I put it away and then it um, dries up on me and and I can't use it anymore. So I used to get the paint pens years ago when they first started coming out and they put, a medium in it, like an airbrush medium, to keep the tips so that the paint will actually flow and not dry up. And I did this big painting and I had all of these different things that I had added with these. you know, I'm thinking it's acrylic, it's mine. So then I go to put a coating, a clear acrylic coating over the piece to give it a different sheen. And all of those things I had done with the pen began to kind of just melt so to speak you know and flow together because of that airbrush medium so it actually turned out okay but yes like you had said earlier kelly is live and learn with the experiments one of my students had recently suggested i think it's posca i'm not sure if i say it right but it's p-o-s-c-a paint pen markers and i'm really liking them and i'm using them to add little detail in paintings and they don't tend to to smear if I put this other acrylic coating over them. Pit pens, if you're more into drawing or writing, you can get those with a, a regular kind of a roller tip or a brush tip. And those are very archival and light fast. I mean, you can get go into the kids section at the hobby store and get the Crayola markers or get, you know, if you wanna just play, but those are gonna fade out over time. But I like to have a variety of sizes, like big markers. I don't use Sharpies in my work, but you know, paint pens. So you can get the the wider tips, the finer, delicate tips. And I have really begun enjoying using markers in my work.
0: You mentioned light fastness. So from a pen standpoint, what words should we be kind of on the lookout to know if it's light fast or not light fast?
1: So the difference would be if it's a pigment. Then it's going to be tend to be more light fast than a dye. And a dye sublimation or dye, like in alcohol inks, is not light fast. And I see people doing a lot of beautiful work with alcohol inks, but they're not light fast. So they will fade out over time. And of the colors, their different colors that are going to be more fugitive or fade faster. And yellows, blacks tend to be more fugitive. So Golden website has a great color chart, you know, interactive, and you can go into, and they tell you about light fastness and it's helpful. But with pens, it's a little trickier. So that the dye or the uh, pigment would be the best way to tell.
0: Okay, so we've talked a lot about a bunch of different stuff today. So if someone is feeling overwhelmed, after hearing this where do they begin? So this is what I like
1: to do if if it just all seems so overwhelming to you. Limit what you're going to use and i do this as a as a design exercise as a painting exercise i love to challenge myself when i'm cleaning off my work table after finishing a project i've always got these you know, collage you always have leftover parts you know it's a good thing i don't build automobiles or something but you know so you're going to have these leftovers you're going to have things and it's like okay i'm only going to use these two pens. these papers, these two colors, and I don't have to use everything, but I can't keep adding in more stuff, at least until I'm 95% finished. You know, when you get to that point where you're like, it's done, but it needs one little thing, then you could pull something else in. But if you're sitting there with 50 things in front of you and you're new to this, you're not going to know where to begin. So here's your homework. Get yourself a few papers, glue them down onto another paper. Then you want to take and maybe do a little scribbling or drawing and then bring some paint in, two colors over that. Let that dry and then maybe find a picture something that you really like and then glue that on top and let that become the focus could be maybe you're making a gift for somebody and it's a picture of that person and so you've created this beautiful mixed media background you glue this photograph of them on there and then you take one of your pens or your pencils and you just kind of do some doodling design around it and there you go and you're
0: going to be hooked we talked about a bunch of different pieces So for someone who's just getting started, or even someone who has a fair amount of experience with this, how do you make sure that this doesn't just look like a bunch of individual things glued to a canvas, but instead like a cohesive piece that is working together.
1: When you're first starting out, you're going to be just exploring and you're going to be experimenting. And I think if you have an expectation of yourself that this has to be a really nicely finished piece, you're, you're going to be disappointed. I mean, let go of that word of this has to be a success and look at it as this is going to be an exploration. And a lot of times, I'll do what I call just making backgrounds. And so I've got some things going on, you know, and I know they're not finished. They're just, they're really cool backgrounds. And they kind of lurk around on the side walls of the studio. And then after a while, it's like, oh, I'll grab one. Yeah, I know what to do with you now. I mean, and this is for somebody who's been doing this all their life, but I wanna look at collage or mixed media as a dance. And so all of these different elements in your work are gonna have to interact in some way. So, you know, we talked earlier about maybe linking shapes by overlapping things rather than just having, you know, six squares of six pictures glued on that, you know, what are they trying to say to each other? So imagine it's a conversation. So start to have this overlapping going on. Integrate the pieces of your puzzle. And think of it as this, you know, if you're doing a dance, your dance partner, you don't want to step all over their toes and something. You need to be listening to what they're saying. And I talk a lot about listen to what your piece is trying to tell you. And the best thing I can say, too, is like you want to keep rotating it. So take it and turn it upside down. And that is where you're going to really see if something is like, oh, this is way off. Because what happens when you turn it upside down is that you your mind lets go of that judgment of, oh, that's supposed to be this. And it's just seeing the shapes and the planes. And you can say, well, that line doesn't look good next to that. And that needs to be integrated. And that's the best advice is just keep rotating that and turning it upside down. And just give yourself a break. I mean, you know, you don't walk into a, a plane and just expect to go fly a turbo jetliner across the country first time in, so look at it as exploration, experimentation, and trust your instincts. When I'm doing design, I feel it, if it's right, I feel it in my gut, and it's like, I can sometimes move something like half an inch, oh yeah, that feels better. So, play that game with
0: yourself. You can find more out about Sandra Duran Wilson, including her workshops at her website, sandraduranwilson.com, and on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming back to the show, Sandra.
1: Oh, I had a blast as usual. It's always so good to be here. Thank you, Kelly.
0: Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. Head to Learn to Paint slash podcast slash episode 41 for show notes and a link to the bonus episode on stencil and crackle paste. But before you go, click like and subscribe on your listening app if you like the show. And if you've got a few more moments to spare, leave a review of the show. This helps other artists find the show and makes a big difference. Speaking of big, big differences, a big thank you to everyone supporting on Patreon. You make this show possible. Thank you to High Gloss supporters Andrew Atterberry, Debbie and Brian Miller, Janet Wheeler, and Rihanna DeRold. Learn more about Patreon by clicking the Patreon link at learntopaintpodcast.com slash support. Happy painting!